A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. So on this topic, what are the books that we have to have on our reading list? So one of the things that I, I thought would be useful for us to think about uh, very briefly, uh, given our focus, is the 1982 essay by Dan Rogers in Search of Progressivism, um, and then also what we see, Nancy and I, in our introduction to the Gilded Age Companion, but also I think a lot of us teach and think a lot about, Dan Rogers is sort of three main clusters of ideas that help to unify um, many of the movements and patterns and trends of the era. They're not perfect, but I think they work pretty neatly. And so one is social efficiency. Another is the rhetoric of anti-monopolism. And a third is the emphasis on social bonds. And this model, he argued, um, suggested a kind of active dynamic aspect of, you know, uh, progressive ideas in the plural, right? Um, and that these ideas go back to Twain and Warner in the 1870s, right? So they, they're much, uh, they transcend the, the period itself from the 1870s up to about 1920. Um, and they also encapsulate some of those core questions that we've been talking about throughout this whole conversation. Uh, some of the things that, that are very much with us today about how to regulate, you know, questions of inequality and racial injustice and structural racism, uh, how to grapple with, you know, the power of special interests in society, what it means to embody American ideals in foreign policy, for instance, and social justice abroad uh, being something out there, uh, social harmony, what does that even mean? Are calls for equity uh, useful? Uh, or are they actually fundamentally divisive in, in, in kinds of ways that, that progressives would have understood? And I think, you know, some folks that say, um, David Hollinger has written about in the 80s and 90s who emphasized multiculturalism would have forgotten about that they weren't thinking in the same terms that progressives um, were or, or had the capacity to uh, self-styled progressives in, in that period. So it's useful, I think, to get out a couple of those um, kind of structuring concepts or what, some of the ways that, that the era has been structured. I think that that is a really useful article. One that that I use um, a lot is Peter Feinlein's obituary for the progressive movement. It was written in 1970. And it's, it, I start my uh, my seminar with this. So it's like, so they have to read this obituary and then it's like, okay, you know, is there a progressive era? What, you know, are, are, so how can we justify, you know, this force? So that it's a great starting place. Um, and then it's also at the end of, of um, 
the, the, the quarter, it's also kind of a great place to revisit. All right. So, you know, it's still problematic after, you know, 10 weeks of discussing all these things and so forth. But the um, so rather than arguing for it, arguing against it, I think kind of, you know, can, can help shape um, as well and get people thinking um, uh, sort of uh, creatively. Yeah. So I suppose um, I'd say for people who want a sweeping take on the era, um, particularly uh, say, interested students, scholars who don't work in the period, perhaps, or fellow U.S. scholars. I'd, I'd go with um, Rebecca Edwards's book, uh, New Spirits, uh, Maureen Flanagan's book, um, America Reformed, um, uh, Jackson Lear's Rebirth of a Nation uh, are all really good. I like Glenda Gilmore's edited uh, volume, which has primary sources and some select secondary sources, mostly select secondary sources. Um, who were the progressives? I think that's pretty good. You know, I, I uh, we've mentioned a few here. You know, I'd, I'd certainly um, dive into some of the bi biographies of the era. One that um, I found really fascinating and read over the holidays. Last year uh, was Goddess of Anarchy about the life and times of Lucy Parsons, who's uh, who was the partner of a much better known uh, Haymarket um, uh, radical. Uh, that's written by Jacqueline Jones, which is fantastic. One of the authors in our volume, Nancy's in my volume, um, Kim uh, Kimberly Hamlin has a book called Free Thinker uh, about a pioneering um, a feminist. Um, and so I, I think some of the biographies are great. Uh, Nick Salvatore's Eugene Debs is still the standard book on Debs, which is fantastic. Uh, since Nancy won't do it, I'll highlight her Fight and Bob La Follette, which is a fantastic biography of one of the most important progressive figures uh, of the era, one I think we all should know more about. So those are a few. You know, I think we talked a little bit about um, how the era has been understood. So I would point us back to some of the critical takes, like Gabriel Coco talked about the triumph of conservatism. There's Eldon Eisenach and some others have written about like the lost promise of progressivism. You might also go back to the iconic figures. John Morton Blum wrote about all the progressive presidents. There's like a there's a neat little volume, which is actually quite a good read, but it reifies some of the stuff we were saying, you know, scholars don't really buy into now. It's it's Roosevelt, it's Wilson, it's Roosevelt, you know, those kind of figures. Hey, uh, as kind of quintessentially progressive presidents. And then I think he ends that with Lyndon Johnson as a quintessentially progressive president, uh, admittedly well outside the progressive era. So, you know, th those are a few. I mean, I, there's lots of great books on populism. Um, Charles Postel has a fantastic book. I mean, I think you can't understand this period or American politics today without um, going to that. Michael Kazin's book, Populist Persuasion, is actually a real model for how to undo work on kind of idea systems as they change over time. We started with this question of, you know, can you put back into an era uh, language that, that the historical actors didn't necessarily believe in. And, and Kazin's book is, is a masterpiece in thinking about how particular rhetorics um, can inflect and inflect people's language and thinking even when they're not thinking in those terms at all. And that's been really in, influential to me in my thinking about internationalism and isolationism, because even if people don't call themselves internationalists or isolationists, if they're advancing all or many of the constituent arguments, uh, I think we as historians can make the judgment that they're advancing a kind of internationalist or isolationist claim. So I'd say thinking about populism, particularly as it's in its 20. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 form um, would be useful to link up with, with Kazin and Postel's work in particular. And I, I mean, I think that, that was brilliant. I mean, I, I think you hit um, so many of the um, 
the books that, that, that I would include as well. I would also add though, that there are a number of really good collections. I'm thinking of one by the, by the links of just documents from the period. And I think that in addition to all of these wonderful secondary sources, and there's such, there's such a wealth there, I wouldn't overlook just letting people speak for themselves. And, and um, so I would, that would be the only thing that, that I would add. I, I'm, I'm, no one can see this because of course this is audio, but we're all furiously nodding our heads as each other speaks because these are, I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful books. And of course, you know, we've got to add Twain and, um, and Warner to this list is if people can go back and you can get it on audiobook for free now. I mean, listen to it and try and get to grips with what exactly they're, they're talking about. So, okay. So there's a lot of books to add to the reading list this week for sure. Um, the, the other question is probably the hardest question I, I ask. Um, what single object can help tell the story of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era? Well, this is, um, I don't know. It, I, I kind of go back to the basics here. Um, I would uh, want to um, take a look at the uh, ninth floor lock of the Triangle Factory fire. So this was the lock that was brought into the courtroom. And so, I mean, I think it just opens up all of these discussions about, um, I mean, the Triangle Factory fire is, is so perhaps overused, but really as sort of a, you know, a Gilded Age and Progressive Era sort of classic event. And so this, this lock was brought in to show that um, these workers were in fact locked into this burning factory. And so it gives you all of the, you know, the Gilded Age horrors but also the fact that there is a trial um, and there are efforts um, after this fire to make sure that we have fire safety and standards and so forth. So I think this one um, lock um, sort of, you know, literally um, can be used to unlock sort of this whole, uh, this, this whole period. So that would be, um, that, that would be one that I would um, recommend. That's fantastic. And so metaphoric, just like the Gilded Age as well, like you say, fantastic. Okay, Chris. I had, I had two in mind again, but Nancy's Nancy's was the more uh, iconic dystopian element of of the era, right? Uh, the the tragedy of all those workers and people jumping out of the windows and dying. Um, so I'll go the other direction, uh, and I talked a little bit about this earlier. Uh, the light bulb. I've just been thinking about the light bulb lately, working late into the night trying to finish a book, you know, and so. 1879, 1880, you know, there are lots of museums that have the incandescent bulb that, that Edison, you know, patented. Um, but I'm actually thinking about the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which we all teach. I mean, it's almost boring to us and it's so illuminating to students, literally, right? And so I'm thinking May 1st, 1893, Grover Cleveland hits this button and 100,000 incandescent bulbs go on. In the in the you know the city there, um, and every you know report, everybody who visited was struck by the it, just the um, amazing power of lights in that period, illuminating you know the the city there um, in the Westinghouse AC distribution supply chains and this and that. There's all these great articles and essays written on this. We could make the show notes only on that. But just thinking about the power of the light bulb, changing what night meant for people, changing what safety meant in urban places, the spectacle of that exposition. The U.S. on the world scene, you know, that's just an amazing moment, uh, you know, a really positive kind of a moment of what technology technology could make possible for human experience. Um, and then the dystopian side is what Nancy mentioned, right? That that part of corporate capitalism was, you know, 
um, this this underside of sweatshops and, and labor injustices, and you know they go hand in hand, right? And that's partly why I think we really love studying this period and also despise some of the historical actors and moments that we teach and, and write about. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.